Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. Coming up on the Money Bee podcast, are we heading to a Star Trek future or a dystopian one? We have Vivek Wadwa, the author of The Driver in the Driverless Car, on to discuss. This is Money Bee from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Money Bee podcast. I'm Stephen Grosser. Paul is still out. I'm looking very. I'm looking forward to him with his return on Monday, but in his absence, we've got an all-star lineup with us. We've got Maureen Farrell, our IPO reporter. Tell us, Demos, the former IPO reporter, set a high standard for Maureen. Very uh, high. Very high. Um, and now, what are you covering now? Tell us, actually. I cover Wall Street. You know, Wall Street. Okay. Yeah, I cover. Because I knew you changed. You were the fintech reporter. Now you've changed. That's right. Beats again. Though uh, m- my wife says that sometimes when like when you know like I meet a stranger and they say, "What do you do?" and they say, "Oh, I write about like Wall Street things for the Wall Street Journal." They think I'm. She says it sounds like I'm being sarcastic. Well, when yeah, you I cover the Wall Street Journal, <laughs> yeah. Wall Street, yeah. <laughs> but like that actually is is what I do. You put the Wall Street in the Wall Street Journal. There you go. Yeah. Um, and on the line we have a special guest, Vivek Wadwa. He is a distinguished fellow and professor at uh, Carnegie Mellon. University Engineering at Silicon uh, Silicon Valley, uh, and he's also the author of The Driver in the Driverless Car, and today we're going to talk tech and IPOs, and Maureen, you set up this podcast, so I'll kick it off to you. Great. Well, Vivek, thank you so much um, for joining us today. I've been reading your book. I've been really, really enjoying it. And um, you were nice enough to um, share your thoughts on one of my pieces this week on dual-class stocks. So I actually, I wanted to just kick this off by kind of looping these all together, a number of things you're, you're thinking about and I've been writing about and I've been writing one, one of these stories with TELUS this week. Essentially, technology, so much of your book looks at how rapidly and radically technology is changing our world. So when you and I spoke, there are a few things I'd like to address. I mean, I'd love to talk about your book, uh, but, but then I also would like to just talk about what this means for the culture of Silicon Valley, and you had a quote, um, and this feeds into this dual-class stocks, which we, I wrote about earlier in this week, where Snapchat's founders have essentially 90% of the control, and the people who buy into the IPO have nothing. So you said you said uh, talked about kind of the god complex in Silicon Valley. Um, could you could you speak to that a little bit? How do how do we get here? How do we get? And I think this ties in a lot to some of the things you address in your book in a different way. Yeah. Hey, Marie, thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, my worry is that the gap between the Americas is growing wider and wider. When I say the Americas, I mean the haves and the have-nots. You and I, and uh, you know, the people listening to this, all technologic technologically literate, we get it. Uh, but, you know, the, increasingly people are being left out and they don't get it. And Silicon Valley is going to yet another extreme. They, they really think that they're above it all, that they're creating this amazing future and the rest of the world should be grateful to them for doing this and we should leave them alone. Let them do whatever they want to do. Trust us, everything will be okay. And you see this being manifested in many ways. You're, you're seeing the ugly side of Uber. You're seeing the... Uh, you know, the, um, the nastiness of its management, the arrogance, the sexism, you see all of that. 
and then you see it in the IPOs, because to me this is sheer arrogance, that they believe that they should be uh, rulers for life. The fact that they believe that uh, they're above it all and that they should have special rights and privileges. No, my friends, when you go public, you're responsible to the public, to your shareholders. You have to abide by the same regulations that other American companies do. But this is not what they seem to think. They, 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 you know, they basically think that they're special. And that's what I had said to you. <laughs> and I think it's in a really you know, big point. The thing that I was probably most struck by reporting this is how little potential shareholders seem to care. I mean, there was there's frustration at the idea of it, but when it actually came down to it, it didn't actually seem to make much of an impact on SNAP. And that was seeming, that was the, what people were saying going into it. As I, as I said in the story, you know, no one really pushed back. They wanted to do this. There was no pushback from bankers because they were essentially saying the market's probably going to accept this. What do you make of that? I mean, if shareholders don't care, doesn't... No, shareholders want to make a quick, quick profit. Everyone is in, in it for a quick profit because even uh, you know, common shareholders know that this company doesn't have long-term traction. They've read the reports. They've read the articles which express doubt about it. Yet everyone believes it will go up because there's enough demand and they'll be able to cash out before the company crashes. Really, that's the mindset over here. Now, the sad thing is that there are some people who take the advice of their brokers, invest for the long term. That's always been the mantra, that you invest for the long term, you hold on to stocks. So the grandmas and the grandpas will hold on to it because they see the price going up and saying, hey, wow, you know, we made 30%, we made 40%, until it doesn't, uh, until the stock crashes and they lose their savings. That's what always happens with these IPOs, that it's the investors that get lefting, you know, the long-term investors who get, uh, who are left holding the bag. We saw this with, with Groupon. I mean, we've seen, we've seen this over and over again with a bunch of, of failed Silicon Valley companies, and that's what's happening here as well. How much of that is also due, like, there, there's been, you know, last year you saw very few tech IPOs. Um, you, you talk to investors. There's a lot of people who invest in, you know, IPOs and in tech, uh, you know, companies. And I'm talking institutional sort of investors who are starved for young, growing tech companies. And how much that has, does that allow these startups to sort of get away with structuring an IPO similar to how Snap does? Yeah, everyone wants to invest in the next Google. Yeah. The trouble is that when you know companies such as Google and even Facebook went out. They had the best years ahead of them. They were, you know, destined to double, triple, quadruple, in, increase in value because um, their markets were expanding, and they came in before, you know, well before the peak. The problem with a company like Snapchat is that you can already see that it's peaked, that it's not going to expand beyond the United States and maybe some parts of Europe, because in Asia you have far better competitors. So it's lost a larger market. Even the United States has got a, a small market which isn't really growing. So the writing is on the wall over here that this company has no future, but everyone, again, is jumping on board because they, they think that there's demand and they'll be able to make a profit because there's so few IPOs, there's so few other companies, and there's a hunger for the tech world to get into this. So all of these things come together and lead to this crazy situation in which the founders can get away with, uh, with murder, if I could use that word. Um, is one of the reasons for the scarcity of of those other opportunity those other investment opportunities those other growth opportunities because Silicon Valley in some ways kind of hoards growth in the U.S. economy like they you know 
they make all this money. They can overpay for engineers, deny other companies perhaps the opportunity to work with those engineers. I mean, obviously, you know, I don't want to give them omnipotence in that sense, but but is there is there a way in which they um, kind of uh, uh, are are you know, sort of not, not allowing other industries and other companies to grow as much as they could because they control so much of it or because they take out the economics of other businesses because of yes, the, the things that they do? That. It's okay. more than that. What they do is that they acquire every promising business. And because they have so much, you know, so much money and they have such a high market cap, they can keep buying every promising company and eat it before it becomes a threat to them or before it will go public. And this is what you see happening more and more. And this is why you have so few really good offerings there because they become part of the larger conglomerates. Silicon Valley has become um, a winner-take-all environment where the powerful become ever more powerful. I mean, in, in the old, you know, if we were looking at this, if we look at this in the future, it'll be, you know, like the, the monopolists of, uh, of yesteryear, except it's happening much, it's happening much, much faster. You know, technology is advancing so rapidly that uh, our policy, law, and ethics, nothing can keep up with it. Here, the financial markets can't even keep up with the change of, of technology. I think that's a good place to take a break. We'll be right back with, uh, with Vivek Wadwa, uh, Distinguished uh, Fellow at Carnegie Mellon University. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Hi, this is Paul Gigo, host of the Potomac Watch podcast. Join me and my colleagues every week as we dissect all of the latest happenings in Washington. Check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts and become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and the Google Play Music app. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome back to the Money Bee Podcast. Uh, I'm Steve Grosser. I'm joined in the studio with Maureen Farrell and Telus Demos. And on the phone is Vivek Wawa, a distinguished fellow and professor at Carnegie Mellon University Engineering in Silicon Valley and author of The Driver in the Driverless Car. Um, if you like uh, this podcast and you like other, you know, you want to listen to other WSJ podcasts, you can follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcast. You can also follow us on Facebook.com slash WSJ Podcast. And as you well know, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. And if you have a Google Android device, go to your Google Play Music app. Um, I just want to sort of step back. We've been sort of talking about Silicon Valley, the culture there, and how it's been sort of impacting, I think, the IPO market um, in many ways. There, what's the impact? You hear from a lot of investors and a lot of people talking about Silicon Valley that there's been a cultural shift in a shying way from tech companies, young startup tech companies going public. I was wondering if you can talk about that sort of culture and how this winner-take-all-slash-god complex plays into that and what impact that has on the broader sort of uh, economy and also um, investing. You know, you need to step back, uh, take a couple of steps back, and now look at the bigger picture. A lot of what's happening is being driven by the, uh, by the fast pace of computing advances, what we call Moore's Law. 
with computers getting faster and faster, at the rate at which we're going by 2023, which is like six years from now, our smartphones will have the same computing power that our brains do. You know, that wasn't a typo. I mean, you know, yeah. basically our, our phones will be computationally as smart as we are, and then they'll keep advancing. And what's happened with these advances is that it's spreading. Every technology which becomes information goes exponential. So now you have AI, robotics, network sensors, you know, medicine, uh, 3D printing, all of these technologies going exponential, and they're making amazing <laughs> things possible. So Silicon Valley is indeed building tremendous wealth. I mean, my, my expectation is that not only are you going to have billionaires here, you're going to have trillionaires here because of what's becoming possible using technology, that these technologies literally are world-changing. On the, on the positive side, we can now solve the grand challenges of humanity, which means we can solve the problems of disease, energy, um, hunger, uh, education. You know, all of these things are soluble now in the next, you know, one, two, three decades. At the same time, we're going to be creating a widening gap between the haves and the have-nots, the type of problems that Maureen has been highlighting, that you have Silicon Valley now setting and making its own rules, even in IPOs. We, this was never possible before, that you never had one industry having so much power that it could uh, you know, walk over the entire financial industry and say, look, I'm going to keep control of my company even after I go public. All of this is happening because of the, of the core technologies. And, and it's all good and bad. And you know why I say bad? Because if you look at the last elections, we had the rise of the extreme left and we had the rise of the extreme right. We were all blindsided. We were all shocked about what happened. And we're still in, this, you know, in the twilight zone. We're, we're surprised every day at what we read. This is because um, of the anger that's built because of the disparity we've created. And that's what I've discussed in my, in my new book, by the way. Well, that's, I was also going to talk about that. Are you hopeful? Because uh, like you talk about in the new book, being you, know, you list you know, in, uh, in the beginning like a lot of the sort of problems the world faced. But you're, you're, you are in some ways hopeful that technology can address those issues. I'm both hopeful and I'm both terrified <laughs> I mean, it's sort of at the same time. Because I see the possibility of creating Star Trek literally 300 years ahead of schedule. What we saw you know, in the TV series of having unlimited food, having unlimited energy, having unlimited everything, and life not being about coming, showing up for work nine to five and making a living, and, and status not being based on how much money we make, but based on how much we, based on the arts, based on enlightenment, you know, science, and, and, and how much we uplift to humanity. I see this utopian future, future being entirely possible over the next few decades. At the same time, I see the rise of Mad Max. I mean, I see the dystopia that's creating, being created. I see the widening gap between the Silicon Valley types and everyone else in the world. And I see the anger that's brewing and, and what could happen. And I also see the dangers of these technologies. I mean, you know, for example, we can now edit life itself using uh, CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing which means we can now create uh, new synthetic biofuels. We can edit out hereditary diseases. We can now cure all the you know, things. We can create uh, crops that are resistant to drought and they can deal with any form of global warming. All of these things are possible, but we can also create killer viruses. We can also now alter the human germline. We can also now select what features we want our babies to have. This is all possible in the next decade or so. So the question is, you know, where do we draw the line? Um, how do we share the prosperity? I mean, are the risks, I mean, are the rewards worth the risks? And are we now going to become so dependent on our robots and our artificial intelligence and so on that we lose 
who we are. I mean, these are the type of things which I worry about and which I'm excited about at the same time. That, that's a weird situation over here. And Vivek, I thought it was, I mean, both in your book is you get both the terror and the excitement of it. But I thought the way you framed each chapter, really, like all the questions, this is going to happen whether we like it or not, as you put forth, you know, Moore's Law is happening in every single industry you could be applied to. So it's up to all of us to really ask these questions every step of the way about what this means for us, what are the costs, what are the benefits, and it's whether we like it or not, it's happening. It's going to change. So we all need to step up and kind of think think through this, the real ramifications. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I wanted yeah, to, exactly. to also yeah. ask, and this is on sort of getting back to Wall Street. And um, today, today in our paper, it was out yesterday, tell us and I had a story on Spotify. I'm curious what you think about. I mean, this is kind of a... The latest example we've seen, Spotify wants to go public, but it looks like it might do a very different kind of IPO, this sort of direct listing. Instead of doing an offering, it'll just essentially flip and become public one day. Part of the impetus behind this at least seems to be that they can, the company itself can control things. So I think this is still part of this whole theme we're talking about versus Wall Street, sort of taking some of the parts of the IPO and putting it directly in the hands of Spotify and the public versus the banks. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious what you think about this idea and what it means. And it's a great experiment. I mean, I'd love to see uh, alternatives to Wall Street as well. This is the way the tech industry works and the way it thinks. <laughs> but, you know, the reason why it's happening is because the industry has gained so much power that it can, it can basically now stand up to Wall Street itself and say, we're going to do it a different way. And this is happening across the board because with all these technologies, we're eliminating the middlemen. I mean, I, you know, in the book, I didn't get into industry disruptions, but I also see major impact on every industry. When it, no matter which industry I look at, Maureen, I see it becoming what I call toast in the next 5, 10, 15 years or so. We're going to see, you know, I mean, you know, you take manufacturing, take finance, take retail, take any industry you can come up with, and I can show you how it's going to be be ripped apart over the next decade or so, and our assumptions about long-term value and and stock prices and so on don't hold true anymore because of these technology advances. So here, uh, you know, the tech industry is all-powerful, and the example you just gave of Spotify is that they can even stand up to uh, the Wall Street bankers and say, "No, thank you, we're going to do it ourselves." And and that's that's kind of uh, to me. I mean, that symbolizes both the promise and peril of disintermediation, right? Like, obviously, nobody's going to cry for, for Wall Street, right? Boo-hoo, they're being left out of the process. But, you know, if you think about it, like, a market that is totally based on crowdfunding and, and or, you know, the, the, the you know, every individual is is out for their own, right? And and if you're an individual buyer of Spotify, I mean, it seems like, like Vivek, it, it could enable to what you're talking about, this the, the rich get richer, right? If there's if there's no disintermediation, if there's no intermediaries between the company and the end investors, it it really it, it seems like possibly you know dumb investors could get taken advantage of by bad companies. And obviously, Wall Street has not done a great job of protecting us from bad companies. But at least you know the the, the role of an intermediary seems like an important one. Maybe we need a better intermediary. But 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 there there does seem to be some some peril as well in this utopian idea of oh everyone can just decide for themselves if it's a good company or not because you do get into 
perhaps some of that unequal distribution uh, that, that, that you were talking about before. Exactly. It's always in tech's favor. The tech is able to remove the is able to disintermediate. I mean, look at Amazon as a prime example. No pun intended. But the fact is that Amazon is is wiping out almost the retail industry itself because it's really now direct to consumer. That's what's happening in every field. That's what that's what we, this IPO of Spotify. So we're now seeing direct to public IPOs. So every field, whether it be insurance, whether it be you know any form of distribution, whether it be social media, what's Donald Trump doing with uh, Twitter? That he's going direct to the consumer, direct to the public. You, you know, using the tools that have been given to me, he's no longer dependent on the uh, on the uh, fake news media, whatever he calls them. I mean, uh, to to convey his message. This is happening across the board. Board disproportionate benefit to the tech industry. I wonder, Rebecca. Also, how 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 important is the the economic model of Silicon Valley to to the way that it operates and and the types of companies it creates? Because and what I'm thinking of is the is the something you said earlier made me think about it. The venture capital model that basically allows them to always be playing with someone else's money. Um, you know, unlike entrepreneurs of the past who. Um, you know, had to go raise all of their money themselves or, um, you know, use their own wealth or something, right, which at least had the effect of sort of tying them to uh, the the success of their businesses. You know, on, in, in Silicon Valley, there's a degree of that, but also, like, it's, you know, every founder fails two or three times, and that's okay. That's that's accepted because this venture capital model almost bakes that in, right? And, and, it, and they're always playing mostly – um, or almost entirely in some cases with, with money from, you know, I, I guess at the end of the day, the, the rest of us, right, pensions, endowments, um, things like that. So so do you think that, that partly the, the reason that Silicon Valley thinks purely in terms of disintermediation and is, and is, and is always willing to, and, uh, to kind of take big bets and not really necessarily feel the need to pay people back is because they've just they've they've never had to do that they've always kind of lived in this consequence free world for themselves that's exactly the situation we are dealing with a bunch of spoiled brats what makes it worse is that these are young kids who haven't developed the social grace of of having you know uh, to build things the right way moved up the ranks having to deal with people and so on they've they've been showered with money and look at Uber's, you know, the prime example. The company is rotten to the core. Every week we're reading, you know, new disgusting things about the company and its culture. They've gotten away from it for years, and now we're talking about a $70 billion valuation for a company that absolutely stinks. And it's not that the investors don't know it. The investors know exactly what they're investing in, and they let them get away with it because they want to share the power with them. They want to share the financial upside. It's all money, 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 <coughs> money, and greed. I mean, you know, we, so far we blamed Wall Street for being bad. I tell you, the way the tech industry is going, it makes Wall Street look like a bunch of angels. We make, we're making New York look good right now because <laughs> of our arrogance and because of, uh, uh, you know, these bad ways that are happening because of all the money that Silicon Valley has. And this is, again, what, you know, living here in Silicon Valley, being at the top of this pyramid and being able to see all of this stuff happening, this is why, uh, you know, I wrote this book, because I see the bigger picture on the picture now. Instead of now working towards building this amazing future, which is what Silicon Valley claims to be doing, it's now getting uglier and uglier. It's, it's helping build the dystopia of, of Mad Max. You know, I, I, my next uh, piece for the Washington Post, I'm talking about um, actually blaming the tech industry for um, uh, the ills 
of, um, uh, of social media, basically, for fostering terrorism, for uh, allowing the spread of fake news, for the, for the cultural de degeneration of America and the world, because we're profiting from it. These companies, uh, you know, Facebook and Google, are making money by allowing the propagation of this, uh, of this nonsense. So, so it, it seems that no matter what happens, Silicon Valley makes money and gets rich and does well. Everyone else loses. This is the, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the, the dystopia that I keep worrying about. That we, we need to understand this and we need to now have balanced, uh, you know, we need to have people understanding what's going on so we can have balanced laws and regulations and, and you know, controls, basically. One of the things I'd like to, I mean, it is Jobs Friday and one of our favorite days here on the Money Bee team. So I, I wanted to sort of talk about this idea and something that I've talked with Maureen a lot about is that a lot of the tech companies, the tech companies going public, what they're not they're not employing the same number of people as you know past generations like you know if you look at like the you know sort of car industry manufacturing industry retail industry and that seems to be part play into sort of your dystopian view where only a select few that are in the companies are making a fortune while they're not really having the big overall impact on the broader economy through hiring many people the tech industry is wiping out jobs on a massive scale. So far, we keep blaming China for the loss of American jobs. Now it's a tech industry. We are going. To, I mean, Uber, has, you know, publicly talks about its self-driving cars, and Travis Kalanick has said many times that he wants to get rid of the dude in the driver's seat. This is the, his ambition: is to have self-driving cars, and hence this battle with Google and you know stealing uh, people and code and so on and so on. But there's an obsession with now automating everything. So that we don't we don't need human beings. Yes, Amazon has added you know a few hundred thousand uh, jobs, but it's eliminating millions of jobs. Everything we do here, building the robots, building the AI, building the synthetic biology technologies, everything we do here eliminates jobs. We're headed to a jobless future thanks to Silicon Valley, and yet we don't admit it. We you know th this is why the solution that you keep hearing from Silicon Valley is minimum basic income. That's the mantra here. So you have uh, you know, companies funding experiments with minimum basic income because that becomes their uh, cop-out here saying, hey, we'll give everyone money and uh, they'll be okay. They won't need to work and don't blame us. We're, we're the good guys here. No, we are creating the unemployment. We're creating the jobless future here in Silicon Valley and we're profiting from it in a huge way. How do you, I guess, transfer, I mean, to get to the sort of Star Trek, you know, the hope for a Star Trek future? You know, where you like, you don't actually, you, you know, you don't have necessarily jobs. I mean, how do we transition from text, like, you know, losing the jobs to that Star Trek future? I mean, what is what do we yeah, need to do? That's, that's a great question. In fact, that's what my next book is going to be about. <laughs> but even before that, before the jobless future, we have many other things. Because, if you, again, if you look at the last elections, it was, it was you know, a Mad Max uh, point one. If it was a software release, it would be Mad Max, you know, version point one, a beta release of it. We <laughs> saw, saw the dystopia brewing because we have the, the wide gap between the haves and the have-nots. So what I say in the book uh, is that, we, first of all, we need to make sure that every technology benefits, uh, benefits everyone equally, more or less. In other words, if we don't share the prosperity we're creating, we're going to have riots. Imagine Gattaca, where you have some people who live on special colonies who have perfect health, and the rest of mankind is suffering. No, the rest of mankind will destroy, uh, you know, what we have. There's nothing wrong with being rich and being well off, but let's make sure that everyone benefits from the technologies. The second thing is let's make sure that the risks 
aren't, uh, I mean, the, the, the reward is worth the risk. If we're going to be editing the human genome to remove, uh, you know, diseases, let's make sure that we're not um, modifying the human germline so that we haven't edited out a key part of humanity. If we're going to be adding IQ to people by enhancing their, by enhancing embryos, let's make sure that uh, the addition of IQ doesn't lose humanity itself. And then the question is autonomy versus dependence. I mean, you know, if you consume a little bit of alcohol, that's good. I mean, uh, it, it's fun, it's nice. If you consume too much alcohol, you become dependent on it. It becomes destructive. So self-driving cars are going to be amazing because they'll give autonomy to the entire world, that people will now be able to go around, children will be able to get to school safely, you know, old people, <coughs> blind people will be able to commute, and it'll be inexpensive. All of that is wonderful. On the other hand, we won't be able to, by the time we're done, us human beings are going to be thrown off the road just like the horses were. So we won't have the thrills of driving anymore. Uh, we won't have the autonomy we have of being able to hop into our car and go in wherever we want to because the roads won't allow us to, to be, to allow humans to be in the car. So we're losing autonomy. We're gaining autonomy at the same time. So the, the, what we have to do is look everything in balance and make sure that, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're treading wisely, that we're headed into the right future. And what I say is that it's not the job of our politicians our political leaders to decide what's good for us and bad for us. It's for us to do it. Laws are codified ethics. Ethics are a consensus that develops often over generations, but ethics really are our values. And we have to decide what we want, what's good, what's bad. Do we want drones delivering our coffee and now taking photographs and live streaming what's happening in our backyards as they come and deliver them? Do we want autonomous cars now kicking us off the roads? Do we want now AI getting to the point that it you know, becomes almost human-like, that you can't tell the difference between a human being and a robot? Because all of these things are becoming possible. I think that's probably a good place to end it. Thank you very much, Vivek Wawa, a distinguished fellow at, uh, and professor at Carnegie University Engineering at Silicon Valley, and also the author of The Driver in the Driverless Car. And thank you, Maureen Thanks Farrell, so for setting this up and tell us, uh, Demos. Thanks for having me. Um, we will be um, I will have a great weekend and we'll be back on Monday and also if you have something to say we want to hear it write to podcast at dowjones.com thank you very much this episode is brought to you by Vanta Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk streamline security reviews and automate compliance for SOC 2 ISO 27001 and more learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash WSJ